Between World War I and World War II, uh, a German engineer invented a machine called Enigma. And, and this was really important because German intelligence could type an important message into this machine, battle positions, secret operations, strategic movements, and, and the machine would scramble the letters into a, a message that meant nothing at all. So the enemy could intercept the scrambled up message and, and it would mean nothing to them. But if, if you had this same Enigma machine, you could type out the scrambled message and you could find what the real message, the message of vital importance, so that, you know, sometimes matters of life and death. This piece of, this machine was, was a radical breakthrough in, in kind of technology at the time, and, and in, in terms of the war efforts, it was radically important. Quite frankly, it, it put the Allies in a major disadvantage at the outside of, the, uh, outside of the World War II. What is an enigma? That's what the machine was called. An enigma is something or someone that is mysterious, baffling, seemingly inexplicable. An enigma might have incredible value, but it's hard to tell if it's valuable or not, because it's perplexing to some level. It, it, it's in some way unexpected. That's precisely what the prophet Isaiah says about the person who will come to save Israel, and indeed the whole world. He's an, he or she is an enigma. An, I'm having a hard time saying that. Enigma. Consider something with me for a moment, though. It's 2018, okay? And here we are with books opened, most of us on our, on our laps, and we're going to spend 30 minutes or so reflecting on a document that was written over 2,700 years ago by a man in the Middle East. If you didn't know any better, this would be quite a strange occurrence, wouldn't it? You may be surprised to learn, though, that the, the man who wrote this document has showed up in the, the national news recently. A team of archaeologists excavating the Temple Mount in Jerusalem recently discovered the seal belonging to, quote, Isaiah the prophet. It appears that the, the locale and dating fit the biblical Isaiah, and if that's the case, this would be the first reference ever found out, outside of the Bible that dates back to the 7th or 8th century BC that we've ever found. So it was kind of a major breakthrough as it was hitting on several kind of national news outlets. So all this, although this might seem very old to us and maybe slightly irrelevant, I think it has quite a bit of relevance, Isaiah seems to have found himself in the national news even in the 21st century. But more importantly, who is this man, Isaiah? Simply, he, he was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel around 8th century BC. So this is 800 years before Christ came. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed by the, the ancient enemy of Assyria. This was a big, massive nation, and Assyria had come and wiped out the northern kingdom. And the prophets told us that this basically happened because the northern kingdom was filled with idolatry and, and lust and evil, and they had become like all the pagan nations around them, and so God judged them by sending in Assyria. But Isaiah lived in the southern kingdom, and he lived in the capital city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was still, at this point, somewhat a thriving city. But Isaiah is kind of, he serves as the mouthpiece for God. And, and in this case, he, he doesn't have a message of good news for them. He, he primarily has a message of judgment 
in the immediate future. You see, Jerusalem and the, in the southern kingdom had become far from what they were supposed to be. Jerusalem was supposed to be a place that shined among the nations. They were supposed to be a place where you, you could clearly see God's justice coming forth and, and peace and love and, and goodness and rule and holiness. You, you could see all of these things, but, but they were none of this. They, they, be, they became more of a sanctuary for evil than of good. So Isaiah announced that Jerusalem, just like the northern kingdom, would be sacked. He said that the people would be taken to a faraway land in, ba- in Babylon. Many of them would be enslaved in this far-off city. They would be cut off from God's presence. They would be plunged into exile. And most importantly, they'd be cut off from God's promises. So this book of Isaiah, it's a big book, 66 chapters, is divided into two sections. Isaiah 1 through 39 and Isaiah 40 through 66. And, and of course, the, the passage we just read is from the latter half, Isaiah 40 to 66. And it's in this second section that Isaiah peers into the immediate future, the near future. And he says, Israel, because of their sin, are going to be driven into exile. And they're going to suffer there. And within this section... Isaiah appears even further into the future in order to give them hope in exile. Salvation would come on the other side of exile for them, and it would, be, it would come through this mysterious character called the servant. <coughs> Who is this servant? The servant character plays a crucial role in Isaiah. He's going to be be God's instrument of salvation, not only for the people of Israel in exile, but, but for the whole world. And strangely enough, the servant, the first time he comes up, is identified as Israel. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, Isaiah 42. But you keep on reading in Isaiah, and it's fairly clear that they don't live up to this calling to be God's servant. In fact, they're continually filled with sin and rebelliousness, and, and they're even separated from God, so they're not the servant. But it, it appears then that God whittles down Israel. He kind of prunes Israel down to a smaller group of a faithful, a faithful remnant, you could say. And, and then the text seems to suggest that, that this faithful remnant, that will be the servant of God. That they'll bring salvation. But even, even them, the, the, their, their rebelliousness and sin still lingers. And so they, they can't be God's servant. They're part of the problem. They need to be saved. They can't function as God's servant. What we find as we keep on reading is that God prunes this faithful remnant down to a single person, a remnant of one. It's like the image that Isaiah uses in in chapter 11. We we often read this chapter around Advent and Christmas time. But in that chapter, Israel is portrayed as this beautiful vine with beautiful green foliage. And and it's a mighty, mighty big tree that that provides shade and peace for, for everybody who's under it, okay? But the tree becomes fruitless. And so God prunes the 
the fruitless bits of the tree, and he chops branch after branch after branch until he keeps on chopping until Israel and the tree becomes nothing left but a stump, a seemingly dead stump. And then Isaiah 11, 1 comes up and he says, there's a hope. Out of this dead stump, a small sprout, a root jumps up. And from this root, there's going to be fruit and flourishing. And as we approach nearer and nearer to Isaiah 53, it's clear that Israel's, all of Israel's hopes for redemption, in fact, the hope of the world, is dependent on the singular figure, the servant. But let me take you to the paragraph that immediately precedes the one that we read earlier. Chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. I won't read the whole thing for you, but, but let me paint a picture of what's going on. Isaiah paints a picture for us in this, in this paragraph that begins, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. He, he paints a picture for us of a city besieged and suffering near extinction. People are gathered on the, on the walls of the city. Watchmen are stationed at the towers, waiting to hear what is the outcome of this battle. We're being besieged. We have no more food left. If we've lost the battle, we're doomed. But if we've won the battle, there's hope. And then at the distance, they see a runner. Someone spots a runner running to them. And as he draws near the city, the people can see him waving his arms, shouting, good news, there's peace, our God reigns. And the city erupts in singing. And dancing. This is a big view of salvation that Isaiah is giving to these people who are in exile. But how will this salvation come? And that's what this song of the servant, Isaiah 52, 13, through Isaiah 53, 12, is all about. How will the servant accomplish this salvation? Isaiah is at pain to to explain to Israel that Assyria and Babylon is not their primary problem. Yes, they're a problem because they're going to come and invade and kill them. But their primary problem is something deeply within them. And it's within us. But I wonder what Isaiah's first readers thought. What, What will this servant be like? That's what this song is telling us. It's telling them what this servant will look like. So here we have the song of a suffering servant. It's 15 verses, and it's the final song of the servant, and it's a song because it's poetic. It's got five stanzas, much like we sing a hymn, okay? And today we're going to look at the first two stanzas of that song. They reveal for us an unexpected Savior, a Savior who repulses some and is revered by others. A Savior who repulses some but is revered by others. The song begins in a way you might expect. The servant is successful, wise, exalted. You get the picture that he's some kind of heroic king. Verse 13, read with me. See, I like the older versions say, behold, it's a bit more dramatic. 
See, my, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and he'll be lifted up and be highly exalted. The word translated act wisely here combines the idea of wisdom that, that bears forth in, in kind of effectiveness. So he, what he means is the servant is going to succeed in his mission. Where Israel failed to be the servant, where the remnant failed to be the servant, this servant, this singular servant, this remnant of one, he will succeed in his mission to save. And therefore, he's going to be lifted up, exalted. He'll be given his rightful dignity and honor. So here we are. We begin with this very lofty view of of the servant, and this is what you might come to expect of a warrior king who will deliver his people and and defeat their enemies. And certainly this is what Israel had come to expect much later on. But then the song turns to a minor key. This exalted, heroic servant will repulse the very people he came to save. Verse 14. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. The majority of people, both within Israel and even among the nations, will be repulsed, repelled by this servant figure. And and why? Why are they repulsed by him? Because his He's so disfigured beyond recognition. In fact, he's so marred because some suffering has, the suffering he's experienced makes him barely resemble a human and and it'll become repellent. The one who is supposed to conquer, to save, to demonstrate God's strength and power, he's going to show up and he's going to be weak. He's going to be broken. In fact, he's going to look like he is conquered. Verse 15 offers a different response. So he, the servant that is, will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. What, what is it that causes the kings of the earth to move from reacting in revulsion at the suffering of the servant to standing in awe of him? It's the, what, what is, the radical change from horror at him to humility occurs when they realize why he has suffered. His suffering is connected to his sprinkling of the nations. What does that mean? He sprinkled the nations. The whole act of sprinkling was an act of a, of a priest. You know, someone who represented the people before God. And what will happen with the priest is when the priest would, there'd be a diseased person, perhaps a leper. And, and if that leper was being cleansed, he would sprinkle the blood of a goat on him or, or some kind of water on him. And that would show that this person was cleansed from, from their, their uh, the disease and they could re-enter the community. By sprinkling the blood of a sacrificial animal on on the mercy seat of God's throne, sinful people could approach God's presence. Priests stood between God and people by sacrifice, 
by the sprinkling of blood and represented the people to God so they could approach him. And the subtle suggestion here is that this servant will function both as priest, someone who brings us to God, and I think even as the sacrifice himself. We'll get more into that in the weeks to come. Isaiah says that when, people, when the people of this world see the servant, they'll be repulsed. But, but even the mighty, when they understand why the servant has suffered, they will finally see and they will understand what they have never heard before. Their mouths, he said, the mighty, the, 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 the mouths of kings will be shut because the, they will realize he is suffering for them. In the second stanza of this song, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53, we learn that the Lord's servant is considered repugnant to those who encountered him. He's even rejected by his very own. He's repugnant and rejected. In stanza 1, God is speaking Behold, my servant. In stanza two, it's the voice of those who have caused his suffering. It's us. It's, it's, it's Israel who is faithful. Who has believed our message, verse one, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, it, this is a rhetorical question. Very few, he's saying, almost no one has believed our message. The irony of ironies here is that the servant is suffering. The servant who is suffering is the arm of the Lord. That's the strength, the power of the Lord, right? It's as if God is trying to show us his, his arm and his power, his strength, and he goes, look at my suffering servant. It's very close to what, I was just thinking of this, it's very close to what Jane said, isn't it? My power is made perfect in your weakness. The servant will be repugnant to those who encounter him. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Why was this message not received? Because the servant looked unimpressive. Not like a mighty oak tree but like a fragile, barely sprouting branch that's coming out of unwatered ground. That's what it'll be like. He wouldn't stand out because of his stature. He won't stand out because of his beauty or his attractiveness. Think in comparison to the description of Israel's first king, King Saul. Everyone wanted him to lead Israel because he was strong. The text says he was taller than everyone, fine-looking, athletic. He was the prototype warrior king. If you're like making one on, I don't know, Halo or something. (laughs) The servant is exactly the opposite. In every way, physically, emotionally, He appears weak, uninspiring. He is undesirable to the very ones he comes to save. 
and therefore this servant is largely rejected by those he comes to save. Verse three, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. It's amazing, Isaiah puts, says we, Isaiah puts himself in that category, doesn't he? We held him in low esteem. Despise sounds like a very emotive word in English. The Hebrew carries just the idea simply that someone who looks unworthy of special attention, someone you would ignore on the side of the road. People look upon his weakness, his life marked by sorrow and pain and scorn, and therefore the world will assume that he is getting what he deserves. That he's either a criminal or a fool. That he must be paying in some way the price for his own actions. That's what this this verse is getting at. And because of all this, people will hide their faces from him. He'll be shunned from society. He'll be scorned. He'll be considered an outcast. Even the ones who who he comes to save will hold him in, in low esteem. They won't see that he's very valuable at all. Someone you would pass in the street without giving a second thought to. And so the second stanza begins and concludes still in a minor key. The first readers of this passage must have been shell-shocked. I mean, you've got to imagine this. Why would our Savior King suffer, Isaiah? Won't he be a mighty king, a son of the great King David? How is he going to crush our enemies? I mean, you, we've already heard that kings and of nations are going to bow down and submit to him. And that is certainly what many in Israel were expecting 700 years later. Even in Jerusalem. Under the harsh authority of Rome, Israel desired a mighty warrior king. <laughs> one who would crush Rome and really would crush any opponent. It's it's intriguing. Even the extra-biblical Jewish literature from the time of Isaiah to 750, 800 years later to, to, to Jesus are wrestling with what to do, how to interpret Isaiah 53. They're perplexed by it. It's as if the Jewish scribes and religious teachers are desperately trying to explain away the idea that a Messiah would ever suffer. They do backflips around the text trying to figure out how can he suffer, but he can't suffer. They just, they just can't accept it. And it's no mistake that when a, when a boy named Jesus shows up 700 years later that the religious community in Jerusalem And many with Israel want any Messiah except the one servant that's described in Isaiah 53. But Jesus is indeed the suffering servant. First, he has humble beginnings. He doesn't come like a royal king. 
He's not born in the capital city of Jerusalem. He's not born in a royal palace. He's born in a shed, a place that's probably more fit for animals than for humans, let alone a king. At his birth, heaven erupts. Even a few shepherds and pagan priests show up to worship him, but, but, but by and large, it's largely ignored. And when, it finally, when his birth finally does get some attention, it's only because King Herod wants to kill him. And so the first few years of Jesus' life are spent in exile, fleeing for his life in Egypt. And then he grows up in Nazareth, and everybody sneers. What good thing comes from Nazareth? His dad is a carpenter or a stonemason. Nothing particularly spectacular. There's nothing about Jesus that's particularly impressive. That's actually quite astonishing, considering the impact he's had. There's almost nothing impressive about him. People at the time don't follow Jesus because he stands tall, he's built well, he's handsome, he has a charming smile. He lives under threat of his life, most of his ministry. He's poor. And perhaps on the surface, he seemed very unimpressive. You could say with Isaiah, Jesus grew up before them like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty and majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And because of that, throughout his life, he was constantly despised and rejected. He was constantly despised and rejected. Let's begin with Israel's religious leaders. These were the men who should be their task, their job, was to anticipate the coming of the Messiah, to pour over texts like Isaiah 53, night and day, and to lead the people of Israel to that person. But they hate Jesus. They despise the very idea of him. He's offensive to them. Throughout the gospel, they're constantly trying to trap him. They're, they're spreading lies about him. They drive him out of the synagogues. They, people, they tell people to stay away from him. They totally reject who he claims to be. But it's not just them. He's rejected by his own hometown. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, a prophet isn't accepted in his own home. His family at least his brothers, largely rejected Jesus during his life in ministry. They'd come around after the resurrection, which is a thing of itself. But they were embarrassed by him. They wanted to distance themselves from him. Even his close disciples, yes, Peter and James, these these disciples are confusing characters in the Gospels. At some points, they show tremendous faith in Jesus, but then Jesus talks about his suffering, and his disciples oppose him. Certainly, you're not going to suffer. Don't say that. Jesus, what are you talking about? He looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. 
Of course, his friend and follower, Judas, betrays him for some money. Perhaps his closest friend denies even knowing him three times at at the point of his most, at the point where you would hope your friends show up the most, wouldn't you? Extreme suffering and abandonment. And your closest friends are rejecting you. You could say with Isaiah, Jesus was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Finally, he suffered. We should start with the certain emotional suffering that Jesus endured, having been rejected by the religious community, by his hometown, by his family, and by his closest friends. He, he looks over Jerusalem, this place he came to save, and, and he weeps over Jerusalem. I imagine these, all these relationships that should be intimate and feeding us encouragement and emotional support to be rejected must have meant such severe emotional pain. But the emotional pain of their rejection paled in comparison to what Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's ours from the cross, and Jesus, I believe, is fully aware of what is going to transpire in the next 24 hours. Not merely betrayal from Judas, but he's going to face the rejection of his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His distress was so overwhelming that Luke records blood was in his sweat. There's a medical term for this, I I just don't know it. Mark records Jesus' words to his disciples in the garden, saying, My soul is so overwhelmed with sorrow, even to the point of death. Can you imagine depression that brings death? That's what he felt. The next 12 hours are filled with extreme humiliation and physical suffering. He's blindfolded. They strike him in the face. They spit on him. They pull out his beard. He's beaten, dehydrated, exhausted from not sleeping. They strip him naked and they tie him to a pole with his hands above his head. And there they whip him more than 40 times with an instrument that is designed to bruise, tear, and rip the flesh from your body. He's nearly unrecognizable. And then, and then the Roman soldiers who really probably don't know much about him. This is, they have no dog in this fight, but they see a suffering man that looks quite pathetic, and they put a robe on him 
They put a, a stick for a scepter in his hand. Take branches from a jujube tree, which is thick thorns about an inch and a half long, and they, they fasten it and they put a crown of thorns on his head and shove it down in his forehead. And then, here's the king, right? Here's the servant. Hail, king of the Jews, they say. They remove the robe, and the wounds are freshly opened again. They, they have him carry his cross, the instrument of his execution. They have him carry it. And then when he gets to the place of his execution, they drive the nails through his flesh and they suspend him in the air, naked. You could say with Isaiah, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. Let me ask you, if you were there, how would you react to this? If you could gaze upon what was happening in that moment, how would you react? What, what would your evaluation be of that sufferer? It's hard to believe. It it's actually makes sense, but it's also hard to believe that most of the people there thought, what a waste. What a failure. What kind of king is this? You call this a savior? People hurling, save yourself. This is repulsive. To claim to be the savior of the world and to die a criminal, what a joke. That's exactly the picture painted by Isaiah 53. An enigma. Do you think we're far from that assessment today? Sure, even non-Christians find Jesus' suffering to be a source of inspiration. But to do so, they actually have to rewrite the history. He suffered and died because he, he claimed to be a savior king. That's why he died. That's why he suffered. If his suffering was just a tragic mistake, if he, if he was just a misfortune which he didn't see coming, then it's not an inspiration. It should be a warning to us to not be foolish and self-promoting. But what if I, what Isaiah said is true? What if in this state of suffering and disfigurement, the servant would sprinkle many nations? What if in some way, Jesus was suffering for us? What if in some way he was acting not only as our priest to bring us to God, but as our sacrifice? 
the ancient pagan religions that are vying for power in the ancient Near East taught that gods made us humanity in, in, their, in their kind of religious works. They taught that these pagan gods made humanity in order to work for them. In those pagan religions, we humans are more or less made for hard labor to meet their needs. And the idea behind these religions was very much humanity suffers, so we don't have to. You suffer in order to please me, the gods. But you see, the, the God of the Bible says, I'll suffer so you can have me. I mean, why do I bring up those pagan religions? I, there's, they're not, no one's, not many people at least are, are worshiping Zeus or Marduk anymore, okay? But I think we can probably agree that those are probably a better reflection on humanity at the time. And you have to think, these people who are stirring, trying to have transcendent figures, how do they create them? These people that are writing these documents, they're creating them in such a way that humanity are the laborers, the sufferers, that you have to suffer in order to get God. And here, here Jesus comes, here God comes, and he goes, I'm going to suffer for, so, so that you can have me. Well, we should close. There's much more to be said. I'd come back the next two weeks. That's when we'll be really focusing on what his death means and what his resurrection means. But Christian, the pain that you feel in this life, and there are many people that feel pain in this, in fact, all of us feel pain in this life, it may be unpleasant. It may overwhelm you. Uh, you may be overwhelmed with grief. Your, your pain and suffering might bring you to the edge of emotional breakdown. So that's a reality. But friends, if this is true, your suffering and your pain is not meaningless. Suffering is an ever-present reminder that the world is not right. Right? But our, our, our suffering points us to a God who has entered the not-rightness of this world in order to take on our sufferings, to transform them so that it's at the end. So when our suffering much like what Jane said earlier today, when our suffering draws us to trust and worship the God who suffers, it makes something awful quite meaningful. Non-Christian, consider Jerusalem. Consider the religious leaders. Consider the Roman governors. They had an idea of a savior. And he looked nothing like Jesus. Yes, sure, they had a different idea of salvation. Some of them wanted a geopolitical salvation. Some of them wanted some other kind of salvation. Maybe a hedonistic one where you just get all your pleasures. But they all had a version of salvation. And they had an idea of a savior. And Jesus was not it. And so they rejected him. 
What's your vision of a savior? What kind of savior would, would bring you what you most desire? They had a savior and it was made in their own image, wasn't it? Be careful that we're not making a savior in our own image and rejecting Jesus. Who doesn't fit the bill? We can look back at a brutal society and say, how terrible. It shocks us, it should shock us. But I think Isaiah would say, be careful, you might be making the same assessment that they did. 